Lord, we uh, come to you and open up your word um, to learn from it. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit is with us, teaching us uh, to walk in godliness. Um, give us a hunger and a zeal for your word, Lord. Um, let it uh, penetrate our hearts and let it uh, guide our steps. Um, let us hide it in our hearts so that we don't sin against you. Let it be a light to our path, a guide to our feet. Um, Father, let us take the words that you have to say seriously um, and let all the noise and the commands of the world um, and, um, fall away. And uh, Lord, just pray um, that all of us come away changed, come away more um, hunger for your word. And Father, if there's anything that we're not doing that we're encountered with, I pray that we take inventory of our lives and, and put it in order to follow you because it brings you glory, because you are good, because the alternative is to be uh, lost and damned forever. So Lord, we just thank you for the gift of Christ and the eternity to be able to spend with you through him. Uh, may we die to ourselves and live for you. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Uh, I had prepared a little print-off on the Feast of Booths to like follow up with that, but now I'm looking at my notes and I don't have it. So let me see if I can pull it up on my computer real quick because the, the, the fact of the matter is uh, it was interesting to kind of look at, but I don't think that there's any sort of overlap to what's going on here. I mean, you just you have usage of the same word like booth, but I don't think... Um, I don't think that there's much correlation between that and what happened with the transfiguration. Give me one second here. Okay, so the Feast of Booths, also called uh, Sukkot, which is kind of the, or Sukkot, whatever you want to say, it, which is kind of the shortened form of, form of the Hebrew word there. Chag Hasukot would be the Hebrew. Anyway, um, it was one of Israel's three great annual festivals celebrated at the time of the harvest. It was supposed to be gratitude for Yahweh's uh, present and historical provision in providing for his people over the previous year. But what would happen is during the festival, the people of Israel would gather um, boughs like branches and they would make little like tents, little booths, right, that they would live in for the whole duration of the festival. And it was supposed to remind them of the time they spent wandering in, Israel, uh, in the desert after coming out of Egypt. Um, and like in the Old Testament, I mean, you have this spelled out for us in Leviticus. It's in chapters 23. And then um, it's mentioned a little bit more towards the end of Leviticus, I think in chapters 39 through 44. As far as like the New Testament's New Testament significance of this, though, um, like I mean, we have it mentioned by John in John chapter seven. So Jesus goes up to Jerusalem for the Feast of uh, Booths, also called the Feast of Tabernacles. It's the same word: tabernacle, booth, um, dwelling, essentially, but. Uh, you know, there's not really, there aren't really any commentators that would say that the transfiguration is some kind of direct correlation here. Um, so, yeah, I said I prepared something, but it was kind of um, unexciting. That's about all I got. Any, anybody want any other follow-ups on that? Okay. Um, so... Uh, Let's look then at Mark chapter 9 here. We've been dealing with this um, scene with Jesus healing this boy with an unclean spirit. So we will pick up in verse... Well, we'll just read the whole thing again. Is it Jonah? Yes. All right, Jonah. Good to see you again, man. Glad that you're here. Thank you. Uh, Mark chapter 9 verse 14. So let's read 14 through the end of this section again. Verse 29. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw Jesus, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. 
and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So we're going to start really in like verses 22 and 23, but man, even just reading this again, you know, I was sharing last week that my wife has epilepsy and this at least has the appearance of like an epileptic seizure. And uh, I'm not saying that's necessarily what it is. I mean, the text tells us it's the influence of a demonic spirit, but it is fascinating that the man here... um, says in verse 17 his immediate assumption is that this is not some medical condition it's a spiritual condition right he says uh teacher i brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute i wonder how he knew that i mean uh this sometimes the spirits do speak when jesus rebukes them in this case it doesn't so uh i don't know it's just i guess it's just kind of interesting where it says a lot about how we think about the world in the way that we arrive at a conclusion, right? I mean, I'm prone to think, oh, this is episode epilepsy. The guy is prone to think, oh, this is a spiritual issue. Um, and, uh, and Jesus does indeed end up rebuking this demon and it leaves. All right, so this man is desperate, right? And I think we, where we kind of ended last week was talking about how just notice what evil does. Um, Here's this spirit, and the man says, it, verse 22, it often casts him into the fire and into water to destroy him. If you think about like what a parasite does, um, a parasite actually is quite invested in the survival of the host, because if the host dies, typically what happens to the parasite? It dies, right? It, it feeds off the host. Um, that's not the case here. I mean, this is evil. Like, evil's intention is to take, to corrupt, to destroy. That That is the whole purpose. Um, so, this is a desperate situation. I mean, um, you know, it's not, you're, you're dealing with a world that, that uh, you know, to cook even near your house is not like, you can't like microwave things or turn on the oven. Like this is going to be a fireplace in the home, or if they're by any body of water, this boy's at risk. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like today everything is we try to deal with it as a man-made solution, right? Either it's drugs or psychology or something that's you know, man. I'm just wondering with yeah. all the all the people that are in deep depression or suicidal and all these things, where you know, I wonder how much of that is actual spiritual warfare yeah. that is not being dealt with. You know. Yeah. And Bob brought up a, uh, a good point about how he doesn't assume it's medical, and one might instinctively go, "Well, modern medicine wasn't a thing, doctor. Where they just were superstitious; they thought everything was demons." But we already read two chapters back that the woman with the blood, after many doctors, yeah, she so they knew there was medical conditions. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's a good point. Um, yeah, and I don't know that there's a great answer to this. I think that uh, I think we should avail ourselves of medical intervention when that's possible but i also think that we do need to recognize that a lot of the emotional issues that people are dealing with are not medical they're not physical they're metaphysical right um so this man is desperate he asked jesus i don't think he really asks with faith um verse 
22. Um, you know, he's kind of like, look, if you can do something about this, that's why I came, you know, but I don't really have much expectation for you. And that's why verse 23 is kind of humorous. Jesus, I think, kind of almost scoffs at this guy, right? If you can, you have no idea who you're speaking to. By this point in Mark, we've got a pretty clear idea because we've been following the life and story and activity of Jesus. But this man probably has only vaguely heard of him. And this is kind of an interesting compat or an interesting comparison with some of the other folks that we've seen, right? The Syrophoenician woman back in chapter seven, who uh, comes to Jesus and displays this great faith because she says, you know, heal my daughter. And Jesus says, well, I came for Israel. And she says, well, even the dogs will eat the crumbs off the table of the children, right? And uh, Jesus marvels at her faith. That's quite a display of faith. Or you've got the bleeding woman that Rick just mentioned in Mark chapter 5. Um, and also even Jairus, right? Both of those people, the, the bleeding woman thinks, if I just touch his robes. And Jairus comes um, uh, expecting that Jesus can potentially heal his daughter and, 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 and doesn't even give up after he finds out she's dead. Um, so... This man is not one of these incredible displays of faith. And yet, I want you to see this, that the asking is a kind of faith, isn't it? Just the ask itself is a kind of faith. Um, you know, if you were, like, I guess, drowning uh, in the ocean, you might not cry out to a, a two-year-old on the beach wearing diapers because like, what are they gonna do to come in and help you? I guess maybe instinctually you would cry out, but you're going to ask for help from somebody who you think can actually help you. And so to some degree, this man is displaying some kind of faith. I think it kind of anticipates Mark chapter 11, which we're, we will get to, but it's a pretty familiar verse. Verse 23. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Um, now, I think that's an escalation from this scene. The way Jesus puts it there is um, probably a higher ethic when it comes to faith. But... Uh, this man asks Jesus for help, and that, I think, is a kind of faith. And, and this is something that I've been hitting at again and again, and I hit, it, hit it on it a lot because I think there is still this current in our culture that says that it is your faith that kind of activates God. Um, and, uh, Joan, I see you sh shaking your head no. I'm glad that you're shaking your head no. I want to continually point you to this idea that it is not the measure of your faith that is what's important. It is the object in which you are placing your faith, right? So I think what we're seeing here is a man who shows faith the size of a mustard seed. It's very small. And yet, what's the end result? He actually gets what he's asking for. God intervenes on his behalf. Christ does what he pleads for, what this man pleads for. So the power, though, doesn't originate from the faith. If it did, this man would be in big trouble. It originates from the object that is Christ. And this should be a huge encouragement uh, because it takes the pressure off of you and it places it on him. And it also shifts our thinking from the result to the object. So what I mean is, if, if in faith we cry out to God, we can expect that he will respond. Will he respond with what we want? Maybe not. But that will increase our faith in him, right? Because we will be forced to be dependent upon him, not dependent on an outcome that we think will solve our problem. Does that make sense? Okay, and Jesus seems borderline offended by the way the question is worded. <laughs> and yet he doesn't rebuke this guy or send him home. I mean, he's just kind of, I, I think, if you can, I think that's kind of like a statement of incredulity. He can't believe that after probably all the stories that this guy has heard, he, he, he can't muster a little bit more faith in this. 
And then Jesus says, all things are possible for one who believes. So we have to think about what this means. All things are possible for one who believes. I think we do need to think about this carefully because everybody loves what, what Philippians 4.19, is it? Um, right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Um, also the verse where he's after when he was done with the rich young ruler. And he said, then how, how can we enter heaven? He said, with God, all things are possible. Right. Yeah, that's another great illustration of this, that the, the disciples at, at that point say, well, this is impossible. And Jesus says, no, all things are possible with God. Okay, so here's what he's not saying. Jesus is not saying that when you believe, everything you ask will be granted. Right? That's not what he's saying. All things are possible for one who believes does not mean when you believe, everything you want will be granted to you. He is saying the impossible is possible with God and therefore you can trust him. That's not saying that then the impossible will happen. It's just saying it is possible. So that means that God is worthy of our trust. Okay. Um, and I mean, to some degree, this man must intuitively kind of believe that, or he wouldn't even be approaching Jesus for, with some kind of petition. Now, I think that this might be one of the greatest recorded prayers in Scripture, and that's what I would call this, a prayer, I believe, help my unbelief, verse 24. I believe, help my unbelief. I think that might be one of the greatest recorded scripture, uh, prayers in Scripture. Um, and I'm quite comfortable with the hyperbole of my statement there. And uh, the reason is why I think this is such a great prayer is because this is the central problem of the human heart. It is unbelief. Like where does even sin stem from? It stems from unbelief. You do not believe that the commands of God are good or right or true, that they will lead to your flourishing, that they will satisfy you. You have unbelief. Instead, you believe that sin will be more satisfying, better for you, that it will treat you better than God. So you simply do not believe that God is who he says he is, that his commands bring life, that he's worthy of your glory and honor and praise. And so then you do things that are contrary to God. And that's all from unbelief. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, right? With Adam and Eve. They doubted the wisdom of God. They, the serpent succeeded in planting a seed of unbelief in the mind of Eve. Did God really say? And, uh, you know, that doubt that came from the serpent's temptation caused them to disbelieve that God was good and that what he had said was right. They failed to believe that his command was, was better than the lies of temptations in the serpent. And, I mean, don't, don't we know this experientially as well? Like, how many times have you, in unbelief, went looking for what you thought would satisfy you or help you in some kind of sin, only to be disappointed? And then, even after that, you begin to rationalize it, right? Well, maybe if I did it a little bit more like this or... You know, it's just amazing the way that we buy into unbelief. Um, and, you know, that, that, that's really kind of the brokenness that the sin in the garden sowed into mankind. And, and the result there in the garden is, what do Adam and Eve do? Instead of going to God and saying, we blew it, they go and they hide. And they blame. And they make excuses. And so the question really is simply this for us. Do you believe that Christ is the Son of God? Do you believe that his sacrifice will cover your sins? And do you believe that therefore you must follow him where he leads? I mean, that is fundamentally the unbelief issue that we have to deal with. Christ is who he says he is. He accomplished our redemption. And he demands our allegiance. Um... And I think that kind of goes back in Mark to what God said at the Transfiguration. This is my son. Listen to him. Because of the, the way you said it the first time, though. You know, you believe. <coughs> That's a great, like, 
evangelistic, just three questions. Yeah. And I think it's really that simple. Yeah. If you just stick to those three questions. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I, I really think we need to bring people to this point where we will, we will get to that. I mean, that last question is essential too, right? Will you listen to him? Will you believe not just that he died for your sins, but that the way of life that he is inviting you into is in your best interest, is what's good for you, is what's right? You know, yeah. The really the great sin that you're going to stand for is whether you believe. In yes, all the other sins can be forgiven. If you don't believe in Christ, you're not forgiven. But if you extrapolate that out to saying not doing what he says is not believing, then really, like, it's a, it's a scary thing. Yeah, everybody thinks they're saved because they believe. You know, right. Most people say they believe in God. But do yes, they really believe in God by by their actions. No? Yes, yes, absolutely. And and your actions display what you really believe far more than what might come out of your mouth in any given moment. Um, Wasn't it a thing, of course, in James where he was talking, he was talking about, you know, faith without works is dead, our words show that we have a living faith. Yeah. Not that, not that it brings us, not that it shows, gives us salvation, but this shows that we have a living faith. Yeah, absolutely. Dead. That is the result of a transforming faith, right? And I mean, I like the, that, thank you for bringing that up because in that passage we hear even the demons believe right they believe and they shudder but they don't they don't obey yeah, we know their works <laughs> and that right and that's that that's the distinction is they remain rebels all right so i think this is a really powerful prayer for two reasons okay so the first one is it looks to god to provide the solution to the fundamental problem my unbelief is the fundamental problem help my unbelief god you can do that um, and I think another way we can think about unbelief is hard-heartedness. And only God can tenderize the human heart and make it soft. But the second reason why this prayer is powerful is because it is an act of faith. It is the kind of faith which God delights to respond to. The cry for help assumes that Jesus can do something to solve the problem. And so it's looking to him for faith. Now, it's, it's mustard seed size, it's weak, it's tiny, but it is saying, you can do something, help me. That's faith. Jesus calls it out in 19, the unbelieving generation, right? <laughs> yeah. Yes. And, um, and maybe that connects to verse 29, 28 and 29, like, why couldn't we do this thing? Well, because you're, you weren't asking in faith, you weren't believing, you weren't, you weren't trusting the one who has the power to do it. You thought you could do it. Um, so I guess what I'm driving towards is like, if you feel weak in your faith, then uh, I believe help my unbelief is where you should go to pray. Even the best example, the best that Christ showed it himself, it says, it says in Hebrews with Paul, in Hebrews 5, uh, starting in verse 7, it says, Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayer and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Nice. Even, even, even Christ, when he was in the flesh, um, God in the flesh still crying and praying. Yeah. For you know, if tears says with tears to him, it was able to save him from death. God praying, the Son praying to the Father. Yeah, it's powerful. Even even Christ knew the power of prayer. Yeah, He showed us a perfect example of it. Amen. Okay, so then uh, <clears throat> verse twenty-five it says Jesus kind of sees this crowd coming, and so he rebukes the spirit, and he he says, you know, to it that it, it needs to leave. Um, I, I've been sort of saying, I think since kind of Mark chapter 8, that we've been seeing a bit of a shift here. Jesus was doing lots of public ministry, and now that, that kind of season of his ministry is coming to a close. And I don't think that what Mark has in mind here is that this crowd is gathering, and so Jesus is showing off. I think it's actually quite the opposite. It's like the urgency increases because at this point Jesus is trying to kind of... Um, keep quiet the works that he is doing so that the crowds 
are not as relentless around him. And this is the last, this is the second to last healing miracle that takes place in Mark's gospel. I actually would assert that it's kind of the last. And here's why. The last one is the healing of blind Bartimaeus outside of Jerusalem. And, um, and, and he's like the, he's one of the very few who get a name. Right. And so I think Mark has kind of a different purpose with that, with recording that healing. And so I think that there's a, a point to be made here that Jesus is shifting his ministry from this big public thing to this kind of quiet teaching the disciples as he makes his final movement towards the cross. And uh, you you have, um, oh, where did I put it? Shoot, there's a reference in uh, Matthew's gospel about Jesus setting his eyes to Jerusalem. And, um, and so, yeah, I th again, I think there's a shift in the ministry here. And, and I think maybe the point is this. You must learn to trust this man, not for the nifty things that he can do for you, but simply because of who he says he is and what he commands, right? This is my son. Listen to him. This is who he is. This is what he says. And I, I think, yeah, lots of people love the Jesus who can fix their problems. But would they trust him simply for who he is and what he said? That's a different question. And it's ultimately because of who he is that the grave can't hold him. He's the author of life. Like, that is the most incredible thing. Yes, he can heal blind people and raise dead people, but he's, he's literally the author and origin of life. All right, any other thoughts on that? This stand kind of stinks. Okay, so Jesus rebukes the spirit and it leaves. And um, he, this is also some kind of unique phrasing here. He says in verse 25, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. So there's sort of this two-part command, leave and don't come back. Uh, and I don't know, may, there, we'll look at like another little uh, passage here that where Jesus teaches on this kind of thing. But I, I, I wonder if there's like, uh, you know, the spirit then can't return on a technicality, right? Like I left. I did what you said, but then I came back, right? None of that. And um, Jesus elsewhere warns about evil spirits returning to the person whose house has been cleaned up but not refurnished, right? I don't know why I didn't put the cross-reference there. Does anybody have it off the top of their head? Uh, Jesus says, after a spirit's been cast out, it'll go, it will wander through waterless places, and then it will come back, it'll realize, like, oh, why am I here in the wilderness when I could be in the comfortable place that I once was? And it'll come back and it'll bring with it seven other spirits more evil than it is. Right? So the implication here is that uh, once you expunge evil, you need to replace it. Right? We don't just turn away from evil. We turn away from evil to Christ. We turn from setting our mind on things that are worldly to setting our mind on things that are above. Um, I think maybe sometimes Christians don't make much progress in their spiritual growth because they've realized, I need to leave that old life. But they don't commit themselves the way that they should to walking in the new life. And so there's something to be learned here. When Jesus says to the spirit, leave and don't ever come back, uh, what are you putting in place of those old habits, those old sinful patterns that you once had? Again, does that make sense? Okay. Uh, I had asked for the reference. Does anybody want to give it if they found it? If not, we'll move on. <coughs> Okay, well then, the next verse here is, uh, so after crying out and convulsing in verse 26, terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said he's dead. Uh, I really, really wanted to, because I keep referencing the 
great divorce and the, this image where this man has his lust killed. And uh, I wanted to just bring it and read it, but I must have given away my copy or lent it to somebody because I couldn't find it on my bookshelf. Uh, but it's such a powerful picture because it shows that we think sin is so much a part of who we are that if it were to go, we would die. I mean, think about even the way our culture talks about this. Your sexual perversion is called what? It's called your identity, right? As if, if that thing were to be taken from you, you yourself would cease to exist. Um, this is how we often feel about our sin. I think this is just a great illustration. The people look at this man and say, he's dead. Now that you took away the evil that was so much a part of his life, he himself is dead. And yet it's quite the opposite. It was the spirit, this evil spirit in him that was seeking to destroy him and ultimately kill him. And what does Jesus do then? Um... Verse 27, he takes him by the hand and lifts him up and he arose. I found it in Luke. Yeah, what's the reference? I was thinking it was Luke. I just couldn't find it. Um, it is Luke chapter 11, verse 24 through 26. So Luke 11, 24 through 26 is where Jesus teaches on the spirit being cast, an evil spirit being cast out and then coming back if the house isn't put in order. So this is what Christ does, though, is that like in defeating sin, he takes us through a process that I think looks a little bit like death. It certainly feels like that to some degree at some points, but he liberates us from the controlling power of evil. He takes us by the hand. He lifts us up. He ultimately gives us life and freedom, but it's a process that looks and feels a little bit like mortification. Um, and that's why the Puritans would talk about the mortification of the flesh. Mortification meaning death. And um, I want you to understand that even if Jesus is not engaged in healing you from some spirit or from, from some physical ailment that you're suffering with, he's always in the process of healing us from a spiritual illness. This is the work he is constantly committed to. Verse 28, I think the uh, disciples here wait till they get to a private place to ask him, hey, can you clarify like what happened here? I think some of this is they're kind of embarrassed, right? They, they were supposed to be kind of experts. They're the disciples of Jesus. They were brought this man that had a problem. They failed to heal him. And uh, rather than talking about it publicly, uh, when they enter the house, the disciples ask him privately, why can we not cast it out? Can I ask you, do you think yeah. that they had, so, so some or one or more of them had already attempted and failed with this kid, saying that why couldn't we have, have done, why couldn't we do it? Yeah, because uh, when Jesus comes onto this scene in like verses 14 through um, 19, you know, they're having this argument <clears throat> and... 18 says they tried and they couldn't. Yeah, they tried and they couldn't, right? Do you think that might be back to why he said, if you could heal him? They've already, he's already seen the disciples fail. Yeah, right. Jesus, right? so if these guys are anything like you, then, right. you know, it's probably not going to be very effective, but maybe you're a little bit better than them. Yeah. Um, so they asked this question, why could we not cast it out? And then verse 29 is a little tricky. Um, first, there's a textual variant here that adds the word fasting. So Jesus said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Do you, does your Bible put a little footnote there? It's, it's, it says it in my version. In my it says prayer and fasting? NKJV, it says prayer and fasting. Okay. Um, this, this could potentially get thick into textual criticism. Um, the fact of the matter here is that the manuscript evidence for prayer and fasting is really, really solid. It's really good. Meaning that, um, meaning that probably the new versions remove prayer and fasting because the theological explanation for that is more challenging. <laughs> 
Does that make sense? I'm basically saying that I think that textually prayer and fasting is more original, but that the translators remove the fasting because it's questioned in a couple of manuscripts and it fits the theological framework better. Uh, so one of the principles of textual criticism, so textual criticism is the process, it's like the science and the art of trying to discern what was the original, what, what was contained in the original manuscript which Mark himself penned. We call that the autograph, okay? And one of the principles of textual criticism is that usually the more difficult reading is the original reading. Because a scribe in copying a manuscript is typically going to try and make it easier to understand, not more difficult to understand, okay? So, and I think that prayer and fasting is far more difficult to understand. So real quick, nearly all major ancient Greek manuscripts have prayer and fasting at the end of 929. Perhaps the words were added early by some scribes to the textual tradition to support asceticism, right? This idea that like godliness means that you, you engage in, um, you know, things that deny the flesh. That's what asceticism is. Uh, so if so, what does that mean? Like, what does this mean then? And that's kind of the second. I mean, the whole, the whole phrase by Jesus is a little challenging, isn't it? This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. That alone is kind of already challenging. Then if you add prayer and fasting, it gets more challenging. I mean, when I say, why could we not cast them out? Of course, it's because of their unbelief and their, and their lack of faith. And, you said, and, you know, how we increase in our faith very much, like you said, prayer, but also in fasting, because fasting gives us the chance and the ability to rely on God like eating, especially eating in general, is one of the most important things for our flesh, for our body, to stay alive. And um, when we deny that, then it's one of the, when we let off one of the greatest things, then we um, give one of the greatest things to Christ to take care of us and to rely on Him. So that's kind of ultimately how I would solve the problem is like, let's even just say prayer and fasting, bring those things together as an act of um, submission and dependence upon God. I wouldn't read this necessarily literally. And what I mean by that is, does Jesus pray? We, we have many instances where Jesus does some kind of miracle, and before he does it, he prays. We saw that already actually in Mark when he um, gives thanks for the food and feeds the 5,000. So, but, but in this instance, we don't have Jesus actually praying. Um, yeah, this is back in Mark chapter 6, verse 41. Uh, it says, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing, and then, he, and then he did this miracle. But he doesn't do that here. So then I don't think that when Jesus says this kind only comes out by prayer, he means literally like, you have to pray, and that's how the demon goes away. I think prayer is a stand-in for this idea that, like, only God can do this. That's what prayer is, right? We appeal to God for something. Anybody want to take another stance on it? So what I'm saying is, I, let, me, let me try and sum it all up. I actually think that probably the ESV should have prayer and fasting. I realize that they, my guess is they chose to remove it because of the confusion that it creates, but it's already confusing <laughs> with just the word prayer. Uh, and so this is just a verse that you need to think hard about. And I think what it's saying is just dependence on God is the only thing that can accomplish this kind of work in somebody's life. All right, um, and, and I think then what you have here is a situation where the disciples, after kind of having some spiritual highs with Jesus, are thinking they can do these things on their own, right? It wasn't too long ago that Jesus sent them out to go do ministry, and they came back reporting they cast out demons, and they did incredible things in Jesus' name. And so I think they're beginning to think, oh, we, we, can, we can do this without Jesus. We got this. It looked, it's Mark, Mark 3 says he gave them authority to drive out demons. Yeah. Right. 
And and I think that they're now beginning to think they have that authority apart from him, not through dependence upon him. And that's why they fail, right? And I mean, I think that that's, I'm not just guessing here. Uh, you know, Jesus says, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Right. I think it's fascinating, this kind, and I'm assuming it's the mutant death kind. You know, so there's like different ways, different methods for each kind. Yeah, and there is another way to deal with that, just meaning like uh, not this kind of demon, but this kind of oppression, this kind of spiritual oppression, um, which could include all sort of like demonic possession. Um, but I'm not sure what to make of that either. I want to emphasize, though, the word driven out. Notice that Jesus says in verse 29, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Uh, guys, the corruption in the human heart has to be driven out. It will not drift out. Yours just says come out. And mine says come out. Come out. Uh, I mean, so yeah, it will not willingly come out. It needs to be forced out. Okay, so even willingly come out. The, the, the point here is that this is not passive. Um, I probably should look at other translations when I'm doing this because like the, the, the verse you were mentioning earlier about it being swept is being swept and cleaned up and not furnished that's like you know not being furnished it's passive you just clean it but then you know if you're not furnishing it then the demons are going to come back so it's a way of saying you know it's not going to come out through nothing it's not going to come out through yeah. passive work furnishing needs to happen um, so this yeah so maybe the emphasis is the um, is from the ESV ah okay Uh, so the the word cannot is the Greek word dunatai. Um, Do not tie your shoelaces together. <laughs> I I think. Uh, look, so maybe the emphasis is only in the ESV here, but I would still emphasize this that um, if you think that. Sin will leave your life just in time, yeah, passively, that, that you, you will succeed in becoming more holy just as a matter of fact um, without sincere and serious effort, then you are deceived. Um, when I was a young man, I assumed that the process of life was that you gradually get better. You get wiser. You get more self-control. You get, um, you know, more peace and joy. That, that, that's just like the natural course of growing, you know, like, like a lemon bud turns into a lemon fruit with all of its complexity. That is not how this works. Um, and uh, you have to be proactive in this work or it won't take place. It's like the more we continue as we grow older, the more we continue in carnality and in the world and things, we actually become more foolish without God. We, Absolutely. we, we give into things that aren't true into unbelief, into unfaithfulness. In a way, it's like without God, the man only grows more carnal and more foolish. Absolutely. Totally. Well it's like yeah. practicing. Yeah. You're, pra you're getting good at it. You're yeah. practicing it, so you get better. Yeah. And this kind of ties in with what we, what we were saying earlier. Like, if you don't replace the bad habits with good habits, if you don't replace the evil with something that is... Um, Christ-centered, then you're not going to make progress. Um, you know, an illustration of this is like cancer. Like, if you went to the doctor and he said, you have cancer, you wouldn't be like, oh, just, it'll go away. No, you would do something to address it, right? And uh, once sin has been exposed in your life, don't think that you can just be like, oh, it'll just, it'll, in time, it'll get better. 
No, in time it will grow and infect more things unless you're proactive to drive it up. I think there will be people though that say like there are um, maybe samples in the world of people that seem to have it put together. Like they may look like, have good habits, successful in the eyes of the world. Um, yet, uh, there's still emptiness there. Yeah. You know, the fact that you may be good with your time management and have all these appearances of good, um, your heart is still not in the right place. Yeah. Um, so be, be cautious. Not everything that looks has the appearance of being good is really good at the end. Absolutely. Totally. And we can know what things are good objectively through God's word, right? right? It makes it clear to us. We don't have to guess. Um, yeah, so I guess maybe the point here is just be proactive in your pursuit of Jesus because it's not going to happen without your proactive effort. Um, let's read verses 30 through 32. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Okay, so this kind of ties back to something that I was saying earlier. Like Jesus kind of avoids the crowds at this point. Uh, way back in chapter 8, verse 27, we are told that uh, some of the following scenes unfold in Caesarea Philippi. So when verse, tw verse 30 here says, they went on from there. I think it is this region, Caesarea Philippi. Um, and then you have, um, well, let's, let's look at something because this kind of stood out to me because um, I have been, so Genesis 49, we're just going to read it today in church. I'm not going to spend time on anything other than the verses about Judah, but it talks about uh, all the different um, uh, blessings upon Israel and the land allotments. So I'll just read this real quick. This is kind of a side note. I hope this is interesting and not boring. Some of them don't seem to be too blessed. It's true. <laughs> it's true. Uh, and maybe it's not even a blessing. I don't think actually the word blessing is used. Yeah, he just says, I'll tell you what will happen. Okay, but you have, um, actually, let's start this. Somebody have Matthew 4. Will somebody read Matthew 4, 12 through 16? Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 16. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. So Galilee is, you know, far north in Israel. You would expect that the Messiah would spend most of his time in Jerusalem, but that's not actually the case. He's in Galilee, he's in Capernaum, he's in uh, the land of Zebulun, Naphtali, which is like that northern region. If your Bible has maps in the back, you can see how the tribal allotments were divided up. Um, and Matthew says this is a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 9, right? So he quotes Isaiah chapter 9. Um, and uh, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Um, that's referencing kind of the, the Gentiles. But Matthew is really kind of bringing together like Israel and Gentiles because this region is, is some of both. Um, but what's kind of interesting is in, in Genesis chapter 49, Zebulun, it says, shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships and his border shall be at Sidon. Uh, what's kind of interesting about that though is which sea? Mm. It's actually the Sea of Galilee. It's not the Mediterranean Sea because Zebulun's land doesn't stretch all the way to the coast. Sidon is on the coast, but I think that that's kind of like just that the people will spread north. 
Um, but it's a little cryptic. And uh, and then Naphtali, I have no idea what to make of that. It just says Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. So I don't know what that means. But I mean, I know vaguely what it means. But Okay, so Jesus has been in this area doing this ministry to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah. And Matthew in particular points that out. Um, but again, now they're going to be kind of beginning to move more towards Jerusalem. And... Uh, I've been saying that Jesus, I think, is trying to be a little bit more incognito now. Um, I think he's going to emphasize teaching and instruction to his disciples. At least Mark is going to emphasize that. Uh, we even see it in verses 30. He doesn't want people to know, for he's teaching his disciples. Okay? And Luke, it's Luke chapter 9, verse 51, that records Jesus setting his face to go to Jerusalem. So he's determined that's the direction he's moving. And Jesus gives his disciples, this is the second time now that he's prophesying his death and resurrection. So he's giving his disciples plenty of um, heads up to be aware of this, plenty of preparation so that they can anticipate his death and resurrection, and yet they fail to understand, they fail to believe. Now, was it to prepare them so that when they're staring at their Messiah crucified, they won't be in despair? I don't know. Uh, I think, though, for sure, we kind of get a picture of this in Acts chapter 2. So I'd love for you to turn there. Well, even a lot of the scripture like that, it says the disciples only believed after the resurrection right. of Christ. After, and especially when the Holy Spirit was given to them. So. Yeah, absolutely. And this is a really key couple of verses here. <clears throat> Uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 22, it says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Man, there's so many, like, just points of connection there, right? Like, if it's possible, heal my son. Like, Jesus is, he's going to address the impossibility of conquering death. And the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, Jesus has now twice in Mark said to his disciples, this is the plan, guys. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I should be received as a Messiah, but instead my people will reject me. I'll be... Uh, betrayed by the religious leaders and ultimately killed and crucified and I will rise from the dead and uh, and yet verse 32 says they do not understand and they're afraid to ask him what does that even mean what are they afraid of? I don't, I don't know. Why would they be afraid of Jesus? Maybe they're just afraid of being rebuked again for being stupid and ignorant. Disappointing them. <laughs> Maybe. Well, you have them probably not being able to cast out a demon, so they're probably hanging their heads low at yeah. this point. Yeah. Um, or maybe this is just God's intention. Like, they're not meant to understand completely at this point, but they will at some point. Um, they didn't think about it, too, maybe. Yeah. You know, sometimes it can be wife's going to die or some disease or something. You don't want to think about it. You want some people go that way. Yeah, that's true. And uh, the Romans in particular were pretty um, committed to stamping out every sort of rebellion in totality, right? So if this guy is going to go and die and he's the leader of this movement, we're gonna find the people who were his followers, his right-hand men, and we're gonna we're gonna make them pay for it as well. Yeah. So maybe there's an element of like, whoa, whoa, whoa Jesus, if this ship is going down, we're on it. That's terrifying. All right, we get this another object lesson. Then uh, it says, verse thirty-three. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, "What were you discussing on the way?" I love the way Jesus asks questions, right? He did that back in verse 16. What were you arguing about? 
What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. It's like my children when I can hear them fighting in the back of the car as we're driving. And I'm like, what are you guys talking about? And they're like, <laughs> we're fighting over who gets to sleep with the dog tonight. Okay, verse 35. And he sat down and called the 12. Um, does that imply that there's more than 12 there? Jesus had lots of disciples. Yeah. I just think it's interesting that Mark says he called the 12, not he called them. Um, so maybe already there's a bigger crowd than just 12. Anyway, he says to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. So I guess there must be more than just the 12 if there's a child suddenly in the room. I don't think any of the disciples had children with them at this point. Um, and taking him in his arms... What a beautiful description of the tenderness of Jesus. Not taking him in his hands, like, here's this kid, guys. Right? He seems to, like, you need to be like this child. Right? Um, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. What does that mean? Verse 7. That's verse 37. I'm just asking the question because we need to read carefully and conscientiously, right? Like, I can I could hear some stupid liberal pastor somewhere being like, look, we just welcome kids and the kingdom of God is open to us. <laughs> but, it, but that doesn't even, like, what does, what Jesus even says here in verse 37, how does it even connect to the argument they're having? I mean, even, in, even in the Jewish culture, I mean, children did not have much standing at all. They were very lowly in the eyes of everyone. They had almost no, really, like, it's, there's really no reputation at all. And um, so it's like being a child was one of, like, probably the lowest, one of the lowest in society, really. Um, one of the lowest standings in society is to be like this. Just be, be, be lower. Just be lower than everyone. Like it says, be a servant. Um, a servant will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, yeah. it says. You know. Yeah. So the cross-reference here is helpful. Um, but before we go to that, so the, 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 what's at the heart of the object lesson, and we're probably, we're probably not going to get through it, but what's at the heart of this object lesson is this idea that, that our world has a pecking order. I was just, I was just having uh, coffee with somebody this week, and one of the things they said to me was, when I walk into a room, I know exactly where I fit in the pecking order. I mean, they didn't use the word pecking order, mm -hmm. but they were like, I know exactly where I stand in the rankings. And I just thought it was a very interesting thing to say because what it implies is that everywhere you go, you're being ranked. And like, you're thinking about that. Um, and the disciples are thinking about that. Right? We've been following Jesus for a while, and he's not put us in proper order yet. So if he's not going to do it, guys, it's time for us to figure this thing out. Right? What is the pecking order? I mean, if he goes, who's next in charge? In what capacity could you even... I mean, I can think of a hundred things that, as far as size and weight, as far as intelligence, and how would you possibly know that until somebody starts talking? Is that interesting? And who can win a fight? Like, what are you saying? Right? Like, what? What I'm... I'm fairly like certain of beauty. Well, when I, <laughs> you walked into a room, well, when I was judged by his appearance. When I was when I was wrestling, I, I kind of when I walked into the wrestling room, I could kind of kind of tell what ring <laughs> I stood. Yeah, we we kind of can't help but do this to some degree, and we shouldn't do it, right? Like, I, I mean, the Christian implication is you walk in the room and you think I'm the lowliest person in here. Um, I'm so needy that God had to die for me, right? That's what we should be thinking, but. We rank ourselves on all, all like I'll even give you a funny joke just looking at you because it made me it made it come to <laughs> yeah. yeah. When I had my beard, people would say to me, "I wish I could grow a beard like that." Right? You are ranked higher than me, Grady, on the beard ranking scale. <laughs> I don't know where you rank compared to me, Rick. I've not thought about it. But all kinds of different things, right? What kind of phone do you have when you set it on the counter? What kind of car did you drive here in? What kind of educational plaques do you have up on your wall? We do it in all kinds of things. I'm sure for women it's, it's beauty, right? Maybe it's even your kids. 
Um, we, we just can't help but rank ourselves on all in kinds high, of different high, things. high school, sometimes it was shoes. Shoes, absolutely. It's, it's all kinds of different things. Even, even, even you'll ask some exploratory questions about like, so what podcast do you listen to, right? Like, what music do you listen to? Anyway, here we find the disciples doing this. This is the nature of sin in the human heart, is to, to figure out how I can rank, outrank other people. And the disciples are dealing with that. They ask to sit on his left and right, right? They, they're, they've talked about this for a long yeah. time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and you're right to point out, like, it's foolishness, because, like, how can you even know? You know what I'm saying? I wouldn't necessarily think it's foolishness. It's just there's certain things you might want to rank, like, you look at you know, I'm, I'm going to walk in and judge a room if it looks like somebody shady is sitting in the corner or they got a gun on the table. I'm going to certainly I'm gonna be, you know. And that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the social ranking that we have and and this desire to move up it. And, and Jesus is going to say, actually, I'm at the top of it. And where am I going? I'm going down to the bottom of it, right? And uh, we'll, we'll, next week we'll look at Matthew 18 for some clarification on this because I think the parallel in Matthew's gospel helps us unpack a little bit more what Jesus has in mind. But we got to stop there. Um, so stop thinking about the pecking order. Let's pray. God, I pray that we would uh, be like your son Jesus, who even though he was at the top of that pecking order in creation, became low, became a servant, and ultimately uh, gave his life in a humiliating and embarrassing way so that we could be redeemed. And I pray that you would help our unbelief, that, um, that even as we think about following in the footsteps of Jesus and what that means self-sacrificially, that you would help us believe that that is what is good and right and, and ultimately even in our best interest. And so we pray that you would make us like Christ. Amen. Amen.